0: Chapter Two of Annie Kilburn, a novel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Annie Kilburn, a novel by William Dean Howells. Chapter Two. Many times after the preparations began and many times after they were ended miss kilburn faltered in doubt of her decision and if there had been any will stronger than her own to oppose it she might have reversed it and stayed in rome all the way home there was a strain of misgiving in her satisfaction at doing what she believed to be for the best and the first sight of her native land gave her a shock of emotion which was not unmixed joy she felt forlorn among people who were coming home with all sorts of high expectations, while she only had high intentions. These dated back a good many years. In fact, they dated back to the time when the first flush of her unthinking girlhood was over, and she began to question herself as to the life she was living. It was a very pleasant life. Ostensibly, her father had been elected from the bench to Congress, and had kept his title and his repute as a lawyer through several terms in the house, before he settled down to the practice of his profession in the courts at Washington, where he made a good deal of money. They passed from boarding to housekeeping, in the easy Washington way, after their impermanent Congressional years, and divided their time between a comfortable little place in Nevada circle, and the old homestead in Hathborough, He was fond of Washington, and robustly content with the world as he found it there and elsewhere. If his daughter's compunctions came to her through him, it must have been from some remoter ancestry. He was not apparently characterized by their transmission, and probably she derived them from her mother, who died when she was a little girl, and of whom she had no recollection. Till he began to break, after they went aboard, he had his own way in everything— But as men grow old or infirm, they call into subjection to their womankind, their rude wills yield in the suppler insistence of the feminine purpose. They take the color of the feminine moods and emotions. The cycle of life completes itself where it began, in helpless dependence upon the sex. And Rufus Kilburn did not escape the common lot. He was often complaining and unlovely, as aged and ailing men must be. Perhaps he was usually so, but he had moments when he recognized the beauty of his daughter's aspiration with a spiritual sympathy, which showed that he must always have had an intellectual perception of it. He expressed, with rhetorical largeness and looseness, the longing which was not very definitive in her own heart, and mingled with it a strain of homesickness, poignantly simple and direct for the places, the scenes, the persons, the things, of his early days. As he failed more and more, his homesickness was for natural aspects, which had wholly ceased to exist through modern changes and improvements, and for people long since dead, whom he could find only in an illusion of that environment in some other world. In the pathos of this situation it was easy for his daughter to keep in ignorant of the passionate rebellion against her own ideals, in which she sometimes surprised herself. When he died, all countercurrents were lost in the tidal revulsion of feeling which swept her to the fulfillment of what she hoped was deepest and strongest in her nature, with shame for what she hoped was shallowest, till that moment of repulsion in which she saw the thickly-roofed and many-towered hills of Boston grow up out of the western waves, She had always regarded her soul as the battlefield of two opposite principles—the good and the bad, the high and the low. God made her, she thought, and he alone made everything that she was. But she would not have said that he made the evil in her. Yet her belief did not admit the existence of creative evil. And so she said to herself that she herself was that evil, and she must struggle against herself. She must question whatever she strongly wished— because she strongly wished it. It was not logical. She did not push her postulates to their obvious conclusions, and there was apt to be the same kind of break between her conclusions and her actions as between her reasons and her conclusions. She acted impulsively, and from a force which she could not analyze. She indulged reveries so vivid that they seemed to weaken and exhaust her for the grapple with realities. The recollection of them "'abashed her in the presence of facts. "'With all this, it must not be supposed that she was morbidly introspective. "'Her life had been apparently a life of cheerful acquiescence in worldly conditions. "'It had been, in some measure, a life of fashion, or at least of society. "'It had not been without the interests of other girls' lives. "'By any means, she had sometimes had fancies.' flirtations but she did not think she had been really in love and she had refused some offers of marriage for that reason End of chapter two recording by christine g in oslo norway the tenth of december two thousand and eleven